Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen, powered by ELEC 825. We are thrilled to join you on WWDB 860 AM and 97.5 HD2, part of the Beasley Media Group, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports. You know, each week, Jeff, we try to figure out what we're going to talk about. Normally, it's pretty easy. I was at a loss today, and you're not excited by anything that I brought up. Well, <laughs> I'm trying to stay away. No, I'm glad you, you that can talk I talk about Thursday night football in just like a couple months and then you'll be happy again. The Eagles do report next week. Training camp opens. So, okay. I mean, we could. We that could, seems very exciting. You don't want to go talk for about it. What, what, you, what, what could you possibly have to talk about with the Eagles other than you can just rub it in and start gloating now that the rest of the conference is falling apart? They really, I okay. I did not plan to open the show with this. Yeah, uh, we'll get to our interview with Steve Sands. I from, think it's all part of your evil plan from the ahead. Open Championship in a little bit. But mm-hmm. the issue that your Giants are having is an indication of the larger problem the league is having with the running back market bottom falling out. Basically, uh, what are your thoughts on the fact that um, your running back says he might hold out? It's it's a problem. It's a real problem because. I get what the Giants are doing. I get what the NFL is doing. Let's face it. How many of the first round and second round running backs were integral to a team winning a Super Bowl in the last decade, right? Mm -hmm. It it seems like it's those later round guys that seem to be able to fill in the holes because everything's kind of a passing offense. The problem for the Giants is their entire offense is predicated on Saquon Barkley. And all you have to do is go, what happened three years versus what happened two years ago when he was out versus what happened last year when he was playing. And the fact is, is that he makes Daniel Jones serviceable. Without Saquon Barkley, Daniel Jones is not worth the, well, he's not worth it anyway, but he's certainly not worth the amount of money that they're paying him. Saquon Barkley touches the ball way too much for the for the Giants to take the position that he's just another running back. And it's not necessarily that Saquon Barkley is that good, even though he might be. It's that the Giants' offense is so dependent on him. It's, and I don't think you can change that. It's that the league itself does not value the position right now. No, but that's but the, what, how the league values... The position is different than how the Giants have to look at this. Well, look, because- when they when they decided to use their first round pick on him, they should have known they were going to have to pay him. But right now, running backs earn less on average than kickers do in the league. Like that's it's it's you know, you have Josh Jacobs in uh Vegas, you have Tony Pollard with the Cowboys, who, mm-hmm. you know, you mentioned teams falling apart. Zach Martin says he doesn't want to report there. Yeah, I'm just sitting and enjoying watching that as an Eagles fan. Well, Zach Martin's not a running back, but he, he does help their offense a lot. But I mean, of fifty six players that make twenty million more a year, seventeen are quarterbacks, thirteen wideouts, not one is a running back. And and the running backs, okay, and, that, so you, and that means what? Well, tell you me say, what. Tell, so you, you say just, you want to hold you, you out. You off the statistic. Because, what what does that statistic mean? Because you're asking the Giants to do something outside the norm of the NFL right now. They should do it solely because they made the decision to take him, and it was the asset they decided they wanted. But the system right now set up for running backs isn't great. They're the only position that's had their franchise tag actually yeah, but, decrease. But, you, but my point is you keep, you're keep you citing statistics as to what the league is doing. 
what the league is doing doesn't apply to what the Giants are doing. The Giants have a different situation than any team in the NFL because of the way that they set up their offense. It doesn't matter that Saquon Barkley was drafted in the first round. That's a long time ago. It doesn't matter anything other than what he did last year. You brought in a new coach. You invested in a mediocre quarterback on the basis that Saquon Barkley can make it work. Without him, you just spent a whole bunch of money on Daniel Jones that you should not have spent. I'm cool with that. That's why it's different. I'm cool with Uh, that. (laughs) If you want to have a discussion about running backs in general in the NFL and whether they're valuable, more valuable than they're getting paid, the problem is, is that the NFL is set up in such a way that now offenses are passing offenses. That's the first part. The second part is the running back position gets beat up more than any position in the NFL. And the fact is, you know, I, I had friends coming out of college that were that were NFL running backs, and they were always told, "You're if you're lucky, you get two to three years, you and and, and that's your first contract. After that, the NFL sits there and goes, "Okay, you're closer to thirty than you are to twenty. We can't pay you that much money. We can't pay you based on what you did. We have to, more than any other position." We have to pay pay you based on what you're going to do because your body has been broken down because we allowed it to be beat up. What's gain? And that part's not fair. What's gain for Saquon Barkley? There's seven years left on the CBA. Holding out is only going to cost him the money. They're not going to change the CBA for him. Do you think the Giants are going to move off their position? No, but here's the problem for Saquon Barkley, and this is where I feel bad for him, is that he is now being held up by all of his colleagues as the guy who's got to fix this. He's the guy that's got to take the stand because if he gets his money, then everybody else might get their money. And the criticism that's going to come to him if he doesn't hold out is unfair. He needs to do what's best for him because, as I said, they only have a limited number of years. He's already had a serious injury. This is likely his last chance to get money. And if he can get seven, eight, ten million dollars, even if it's for a year or two years or three years, how is he going to say no to that? Because somebody else might get less money or more money? He can't do that. I know it th- this is the problem with pro sports in general. This is a bigger discussion, is the idea of unions. Unions in this country serve a purpose. Unions in sports serve a purpose for protecting medical conditions in my mind they do they are not true unions you cannot sit there and say that one person should sacrifice for the greater good when you have such a short career it's just not fair to them how do you think they resolve this because i think it's a larger problem than the giants i don't i don't know how the giant are you asking me how the nfl resolves it or how the giants revolve because the giants aren't allowed to sign him to a long term that's what i don't understand like what does saquon think the giants can do they signed him to the the franchise tag that's locked in yeah like they they can't renegotiate with him right now they offered him the franchise tag. It's the dumbest rule. I understand what the point of the rule was. Was it, Look, you, you then have a limited period to get it done. This forces everybody to get it done or move on. The problem is you now have this, this kind of situation. Yeah, they you have a negotiate. player and you have a team that probably want to do something right now. They can't. 
the the players the players union and the league have worked out a system where you can't work things out after a certain now point. look as an eagles fan i'll watch yeah the you're NFC happy East as a burn. pig in like, mud dallas yeah, having problems cool like well, I, I actually think, uh, you know, Dan Snyder is on his way out the door. Josh Harris is using his, the Sixers leverage to to compete against the Eagles now. That's like He's I said. not going to have much leverage with the Sixers if this keeps up, but we'll get to that. Oh, we'll get, we'll yeah. get to that. Right. But, but, I, but the Cowboys are even a bigger problem. I mean, if, if Zach Morton holds out and Tony Pollard is unhappy and they no longer have Zeke Elliott, where are they? Why did they fire their offensive coordinator? According to the head coach, they fired him because he wasn't running the ball enough. If Zach Martin holds out and they're already down to one running back, exactly how is he going to implement the offense that he thinks he's a genius in implementing? And this is why you listen to the heart of sports, because never did you expect that I could get Jeff Cohen to break down NFC East in the middle of July before training camp starts. I didn't think it would happen. Oh, I didn't even if, have it. If in, only we could like, discuss the NFC North, right? Like we prepare for the show and we have like a rundown of the things we're going to. This was not something I really thought that you would get into with me. I put the Eagles in every week. You generally, you know, until it's football season, you're not interested. But I got you to bite. Well, just annoy me. And this is what happened. I, I got you to bite. I'll take it. All right. It's well, 150 degree fucking football. Since we're on contract negotiations, let's talk about the Sixers and their contract negotiations. Oh, uh, great segue. Uh James Harden has opted in, yet still says he wants to be traded. Says he will report to camp. No word on if he will be wearing said fat suit when he reports to camp. Uh, would like to go to the Clippers. Daryl Morey says we're going to send him. We'll do whatever's best for the team. Depending on what reports you believe, uh, the relationship is severed between the two of them. And we've reached the point of the process, Jeff, where... Uh, sorry, I can't say process. We've reached the part of the summer where now we have stories being written about James Harden updating his social media to remove references to the Sixers. Can you make it end, please? Please. Oh, I did. I did not hear that part. <laughs> yeah, that's the story but, today. No, no, you you did not utter the words that he's playing the baby game of changing his social media. I did. Really, I did. Yes. Okay. I, I did have a question about something you said earlier, which is depending on which reports you listen to, James, James Harden's unhappy. Is that what you said? No, I mean, here's the report that he's happy. No, it, depending on which report you believe, yeah. it's how much he's going to push for it. There's no report that says that he wants to stay here. He opted in because nobody else was going to give him that money. But everything that you see, and pretty much mm. what Daryl Morey said is he wants out. Joel Embiid said he wants out. I'd like to change his mind. So it's pretty clear he wants out. Okay. He wants out. Guess what? Again, I, I, how many weeks in a row do you want me to say that James Harden's the worst negotiator in the NBA? How many weeks do I have to hear this? Look, you, you were happy again as a pig in mud when Harden signed the two-year deal with the opt-out after a year, right? Was, I thought it was just a one-year. It was. Well, he, he had a two-year deal. Yes. Which was essentially a one-year deal. Yes. Last year. Yes. Okay. So So he does that. And we all say, how wonderful he's done that for the Sixers. Well, first of all, does anybody think that James Harden has an altruistic bone in his body when he's a, when it deals with actually basketball? No. This is the same guy who wants basketball freedom. I don't know if that's ever been said before by an NBA player. You can't get past that. You cannot right. get past that. No, I can't that. get past basketball freedom. Yeah. So so let's let's just go on the assumption that he's a selfish teammate. Okay. 
So he enters into an agreement because he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. He thinks that he's going to enter into this deal. He can opt out the next year and he's going to get like a supermax deal because everybody wants a guy who fat suited himself out of Houston, the place that he claims that he loves, and then moped his way out of New Jersey. And after a year and a half now wants to mope his way out of the Sixers to go home to LA. I want to go home. So, and and what he found out, remember, this was his option, not the Sixers option. He had to opt in for this year. So he looks around. He talks to everybody under the sun, probably, if he's done his due diligence. And he finds out, hey, James, we don't want to pay you. You're old. You're selfish. And you want to play a brand of basketball that is not going to lead to a championship. There's no team in the NBA that James Harden's going to go to where he gets to play under the rules of basketball freedom that will hold up the trophy. It just doesn't work that way. And that's what he wants. So what ends up happening? He's forced to take, by the way, he's forced to take over $35 million for one year. And he's whining that he wants out. What do you think? So now you have a year where James Harden's got to make a decision. If the six, I don't want him here. Believe me, I've told you that. I told you when they traded for him, I didn't want him. Should Daryl Morey try to back off this week and say Tyrese Hurton, Halliburton was never actually available? It, it doesn't matter. It, it, look, it just, it doesn't, none of that matters. I'm enjoying the, the relitigating of that. It's yeah. Like, come the, on, the, the, move on. The, the fact is, <laughs> Harden has no choice here if he has a brain, because what he needs to do is he needs to be the version, and it's going to kill you to hear this, he needs to be the version that Doc Rivers wanted him to be. And if he doesn't play that way, because Nick Nurse is going to want the same thing out of him, I mean, he'll just have different drawn-up plays, but Nick Nurse wants him to be a more traditional point guard because he doesn't have the burst anymore, because he can't shoot the lights out anymore but and because he's lazy that, half the time that and so, so if he doesn't stay here and play that way guess what he is at the end of 2024 a free agent and guess what he's not getting another big contract so even the selfish james harden has no choice but to play hard unless he says i got enough dough and i don't care anymore was Joel Embiid trolling this week, or was he being honest, saying he wants to win here or somewhere else? And do you care? Like, do you, everybody reacts. Oh my God, he said this. Blah blah blah. Do you care? I don't care what he says, but I'm annoyed that he can't just be a man about what he said. So you don't you think he it. was? You don't think he was trolling? You think he's trying to say he was trolling no. because he's getting criticism for being honest? Joel jo Embiid is a really smart guy. He knows what he's saying before he says that. Okay, he know e even when he's trolling on his his social media accounts, it's all calculated. You really think that he's dumb? He's not. He's a really smart guy. He knows exactly what he was saying. And he's got everybody talking, and now he's sitting there. Oh, didn't you see what my middle name is on my social media accounts? Come on, Joel. Just come out and say it. It's not going to change anything for you to say what he should have said, by the way, 
is I want to win it here. But if they can't, and I get close to Dame Lillard years, I want to win it somewhere. And that was his version of saying it. But then he backed off and said, oh, just kidding. Is, does anybody doubt that if, if things don't work, it's not his fault necessarily, but let's face it, there is a string of former teammates that he didn't get along with who want to leave here. So at some point, you have to take some responsibility for it. He, I'm not blaming him for Ben Simmons, but he contributed to it. Like, people can get along. They couldn't get along. You know, he kept saying they were, but remember, we don't, we haven't spoken since, since we're not teammates anymore. There's all sorts of signs that he couldn't get along. The only person he could get along with Jimmy was Jimmy Butler. Yeah. And do you really think he would have gotten along with him long-term? Nobody gets along with Jimmy Butler long-term <laughs> because, because he's tough on, on, and by the way, the Joel Embiid that won the MVP this year is not the Joel Embiid when Jimmy Butler was on the team. Joel Embiid has become a much harder worker now than he was then. But back then, would he have wanted Jimmy Butler down his throat constantly? Constantly saying, you're not working hard enough, you're no. not working as hard as I am? That was why I was surprised the pairing seemed to work so well, actually. Because I didn't think that, I mean, I thought he'd react more the way Ben did than the way that he did. And Ben recoiled from it. If, so. if Jimmy Butler would have stayed, this would have been Jimmy Butler's team. And that's the one thing that Joel Embiid will not tolerate. It's got to be his team. So this idea that he's going to leave, maybe he will. But he's only going someplace where he gets to be Batman. So you're going to have to find a team that has a bunch of really good Robins. You know what team that is? It is the Knicks if you can make a trade. It is the Nets if you can make a trade. But it's not going to be a super team because Joel's not going to want to play on a super it's team. It's the Nets. What, can we get our picks back that we, that we set for Harden? Basically? Guess what? <laughs> Guess what? We could get Bridges back. Maybe his mom will come back. We will, we'll finally get Mikel. Look, I, I, I mean, we're obviously <laughs> joking about it. But I do. I mean, we've talked about it. It seems like at some point we're headed for him asking out potentially, you know, if they can't make these pieces fit. You know, he's not just going to stay here forever and not win. He wants to get so, past the second round. In, in, Look, in an ideal world, if I were in Maury's shoes, I'm glad I'm not, but if I were in Maury's shoes, what I would be saying to Joel is like, look, Joel, you play with James. You can bring out the best in James, but we're not getting anything for James. We're not going to get you anything in return that's going to come back and win you a championship in the 23-24 season. However, we're going to be able to sign two max players next year because Tobias's contract will expire and Harden's expire, contract will expire. We're holding on, we'll hold on to, to Maxi because Maxi is a restricted free agent after next year. So we're asking you to just hang in there one more. The problem is this morning, I went through the list of potential free agents for the 2024 season, and it is not a list of blockbuster guys. It's one of those. Pascal, Pascal Siakam is on there as probably, it, it's him. And it's Jalen Brown. So if you could tell me that you can predict in the future that we'll, we'll let Tobias go, Harden will go, we get, we're able to make, keep Maxi, we're able to get Siakam, and we're able to get Jalen Brown. I'm pretty happy. 
But if you don't get those two guys, there's not a long list of potential free agents. And by the way, that's assuming that these guys don't get traded at some point and they're not available. Well, we'll leave that there. Speaking of trades coming up on the baseball trade deadline, the Phillies after two losses in a row are now 52 and 44 on the season, 33 and 23 against the national league. I mean, look perspective, they they were seven games under 500 on June 2nd. They're eight games over 500 right now. They've won 27 to 39. So they're playing good baseball, but they definitely have flaws as a team. And well, and, and you just you just saw the last two days against the team that they'll probably have to play if they're in the playoffs, which is the Milwaukee Brewers. And they cannot compete pitching wise with the Milwaukee Brewers right now. The Brewers staff is really good. Yeah, you can't name Corbin half the guys Burns that are had, hitting. Corbin Burns had 10 strikeouts yesterday. I mean, he silenced the bats and, uh, you know, it's. And we almost lost the starting pitcher. Yeah, talk about that. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand this. Uh, you know, I had the game on in the background, and twice I saw Taiwan Walker reach out for a line drive past him with his bare hand, with his pitching hand. Like, they teach you in Little League. Do not do that. Why he's And the second time, it hit his hand, and he went out of the game. Now, I don't know if he went out because it was time for him to go as the seventh inning or if because he was injured as a result. But we can't afford for any pitcher to go down right now because we have what we're supposed to be our two aces, our ace one and ace two, who have ERAs in the fours. And again, no, let, can we talk about Nola again the other day? Okay, so I was working late and I come home and my kid's got the game on and he's telling me how great Nola's pitching. And seventh inning, I think the seventh inning ends. And I said, Nola better not come out for this inning. And he goes, why? Did you see who's warming up? And I forget who it was that was warming up. Uh, it was it was Soto. And I said, I'm telling you, you, how many times do we have to see this with Nola? Exactly how many times do we have to see that no matter how well he is pitching, he seems to just hit a wall. And he gives once he gives up the one hit or the one walk, he then has to pitch out of the stretch and everything falls apart with him. His mechanics just go. And he's very uncomfortable in the stretch. I know. And his mechanics went. And and I don't, you know, people keep saying, well, he has still hasn't adjusted to the pitch clock. Well, if the rest of the league can, can you adjust to the pitch clock? What was Alex's reaction after it happened? uh, He refused to say I was right. (laughs) Of course. That's what a kid does. <laughs> Is that what I have to look forward to? <laughs> you have I, everything. Because I, exactly. I took mine to the Thunder game the other day. They had an 11 o'clock game, which, mm-hmm. by the way, I love like early day baseball with little kids. <laughs> it's the best. We went, had, had a fun time. Uh, he's amazed by foul balls that clang off of the facing of the stadium there. Mm-hmm. But again, you know, we're sitting there right along the net. The players are talking to him. Now, all of a sudden, I'm taking him to the Phillies game. They think that the Fanatic's going to come and sit next to him and, like, hang out and high five. Like, I'm raising the bar. I don't know what to do here, Jeff. You're the one that took your kid to all minor league games forever. How do I deal with this? Help. Uh, you teach them to just like the game. Okay. Not worry about the mascot. <laughs> uh, your, your boy, uh, Babe Kingman Schwarber, has driven in 10 runs in six games since the All-Star break. Uh, he's up to 190 on the season, scorching now, Jeff. Do you, you feel better me? about him? Because I, I was just going to ask you, do you really want me to feel better about this? I want to know if you actually do feel better about him. No, so I don't. It, last I year, don't. He's not batting 200. Last year, 
you know, the Eagles were playing well and I would bring up like critiques of the team and I would say, but this and but that. And you're like, but they have this record. So the Phillies have this record now where they're in wildcard contention, Mm -hmm. but they seem like a flawed team. They like they struggle with running runners in scoring position. They're starting pitching, although it feels like it's struggled. Their starters have a 3.2 ERA since June 1st. That's the second best in baseball. The people are hitting. It's a mirage. I'm just saying those are what it's a mirage. And Aaron Nola pitches well until he falls apart. Chris Wheeler, I mean Zach Wheeler has not pitched particularly well. That's how it's been Taiwan Walker, who before today before yesterday's game had a seven game winning streak. Yeah, look, Chris Sanchez. And Chris Sanchez was points. doing well and he and look, he did well the other day, but he didn't do great. He did okay. An error didn't help him. And Ranger Suarez it but you don't have an ace right now on this seat on this team. You don't have pitchers. Last year, how excited were we going into the playoffs because of the starting pitching and and the 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 reliever, well, the other starters could be relieved. Ranger was the bonus. He emerged. Nobody expected Correct. that. Right. You don't have that who, right now. Who who's who is it that you're putting in as your game one starter in the wild card round? Lee. Right now. Who is it? Gotta put Zach Wheeler out there, I guess. I'm not putting Aaron Nola yeah, but, out there. But you're saying you're saying you gotta. But are you feeling that he? Have you seen Zach Wheeler? Like, have you I don't seen feel, the guy? I don't feel confident with any of our starters, to be quite honest. My point. That's my point. And so, what? Which part of the team is going to lift the other teams? If the other parts, that's what you need. You always need on a team in baseball. You have, you have three components of a baseball team. You're hitting, you're fielding, and you're pitching. And which of those three do you, are you going to count on right now that can lift the other two if the other two aren't carrying their weight? It seems like they're making a lot of their decisions based off of Bryce Harper playing first base, and I still haven't seen him do that. He's going to maybe okay. get four games at first base. I, I don't know if that's a big enough sample size to say he can be your first baseman. That okay, you get so, a left so okay. Okay, but let's make that assumption. So, and and by the way, love Derek Hall. No more, mm-hmm. no more. At least not right. He he's not right hitting the mm-hmm. way he was before, and his fielding Defense has been exposed. atrocious. Yeah, it's been exposed. Not and, that he and, was ever and the today, best fielder. And today he Taiwan Walker picked up Yelich in the first inning, and the ball almost went through his mitt. Yeah, he, and and he sat there putting his mitt back together with his teeth in his hand. Like, like what is going on with him? Yeah. He's had a rough so, time up here. So let's assume Harper is serviceable at first base. He's a great athlete. That doesn't mean he's going to be a great first baseman. You have to have the instinct first baseman. People always sit there and go, Oh, they put the least athletic guy at first base. That's not true. You have to have instincts to play at first base. You have to have really good reflexes. And, and, and Par- Harper clearly is a great athlete, but those instincts are developed over years how to do a, how to make a pick, when to get off of a bag to, to be able to judge whether or not you're going to be able to stretch or not to stretch. Yeah, I'm worried He's about the, the R guy. slot of him throwing to second. I'm not, I'm not worried about that. Uh, I'd like you, you to find out for me. You're, you're the statistics guy. So your assignment for next week is to find out how many assists the Phillies first baseman have had this season. And it'll be about 100 games by that point. And I'm guessing that it's going to be less than 20. Talk about a scavenger okay. hunt. And, and, and if that's true, 
I'll sacrifice if I can trade every fifth game or every third game Harper throwing to second base that he just holds on to it if he needs to. And I assume he won't even do that, but let's assume it is that I get Schwarber out from between the lines. That's a win. That's a huge win. Because you can keep telling me that Schwarber needs to be in for his hitting. He doesn't need to be leading off. And he, and he's still batting under 200. He's still batting under 200. And he has got to be the worst fielder in the major leagues now. No, and he might, made that great catch the other day. And, Come on, I know, best fielder I, I know in all about it. And, and that's everybody's going to forget all the times that the ball bounces out of his glove. Or such short memories. We have such short memories. People, Rojas made a play in like his first inning in the major leagues and everybody like fell in love with him. It, it, it's it, it's because we were starving for mediocre outfield play. Well, let's leave the Phillies there. We'll see what they end up doing when we come back next week. Let's hit the break. When we come back, we'll talk some golf with Steve Sands. Stick with us. Operating engineers are the men and women that move mountains. And the Engineers Labor Employer Cooperative, ELEC, puts them to work. They create opportunities for the men, women, and union signatory contractors of Local 825, repaving our roads, keeping our homes bright and warm, and even building our favorite team stadium. We understand infrastructure. That's why ELEC and Local 825 are ready to get to work. All right, let's talk some golf and bring on Steve Sands, play-by-play voice and lead interviewer for NBC and the Golf Channel. It's Open Championship Week. We know you're a busy man over there, so thanks for giving us some time, Steve. My pleasure, anytime. Uh, We mentioned the Open Championship. Talk to us. Let's start there for right now. Talk to us about some of the storylines. What's the feel over there as this tournament goes about to go on? Oh, you know, it's such a cool week in golf. It's so different than everything else. Um, I was thinking about it the other day with Wimbledon and and Novak and Carlos going at it one and two. Golf's majors are like tennis is majors they they all have their own feel to it and the open championship is just completely different than the other three that the weather is a massive factor it's links golf uh, it doesn't look the same for the american audience on television doesn't feel the same for the guys who are playing this week and if you look at rory winning last week uh, if you look at all the things that are going on with the defending champion and cam smith and the live and the pga tour thing and Coming back to Liverpool the last two times, it was McElroy and Tiger Woods. Uh, there, there are so many things to look forward to this week. I just can't wait for it. No, you talk, you mentioned Rory. Rory has gone quite a while without uh, winning a major. With him winning last week, what is the sense over there? What is the excitement level over there about Rory potentially getting his next major? Mm, a lot. Uh, I mean, he is so popular no matter where you go. Uh, but when you're over here, like, I don't know if you guys remember last year walking at St. Andrews. The whole world was rooting for Rory McIlroy a year ago, and they're going to be doing that again. Um, they think of him as one of their own here. Um, you know, the United Kingdom stretches into Northern Ireland, which is where he's from. Um and he's just such a good guy and everybody, you know, loves being around him, loves talking to him, those kinds of things, loves rooting, love rooting for him. For him to win last week was big. Uh, he hasn't won a major in nine years. All right. So if you think about nine years going by, the last time he won a major championship was Valhalla, the PGA championship. That was when it was played in August. 
He won the week before at Bridgestone in Akron. That's the last time anybody won a PGA Tour event and then won a major the following week. So for him to win last week, he is completely aware of, of that exact statistic. Uh, so I, I think it bodes well for Rory coming into this week. You know, Steve, we, we remember Rory from, from young Rory. Rory mm-hmm. has become mature in ways I don't know if anybody expected. He he has he's become not just this great golfer, but he has become the voice or even the conscience of, of the game. What is right. it about Rory that has led him to now? Well, he is he's a bright guy. He's um, intuitive. He's inquisitive. Um, he reads a lot. Uh, you could talk to Rory. One of the things I enjoy about Rory so much is. You could talk to him about golf all day, but you could also talk to him about politics and talk to him about life and talk to him about fatherhood and talk to him about marriage and talk to him about what it was like growing up uh, in Northern Ireland. He can tell you about the history of of all the things, the Catholics and the Protestants and all the, the things that have, you know, he's basically seen his whole life. Uh, he's not just a golfer. Normally when you're around athletes, uh, and this is a good thing. To be an elite athlete, to be a great, great professional athlete, there's got to be a lot of, you know, selfishness inside you. Uh, but that doesn't mean you need to be a selfish person. And he certainly is not. And he's just grown up and become a wonderful young man. Uh, he's well-rounded. I remember him telling me years ago, you know, I, I want to be the best player in the world. And I want to be the best player in the history of the sport, but not at the expense of of being abnormal uh, to a point and being, you know, so selfish that I don't have anything else in my life other than golf. And perhaps that's going to prevent him, you know, from winning, you know, gajillions of majors, you know, like Tiger and like Jack did, you know, all those years ago. But he can live with that um, as long as he, you know, maintains his true self. Uh, he's trying to find that balance between being the voice and the conscious, like you said, of the game. Uh, the face of this whole PGA Tour versus live situation, but also playing high-level golf. He may have lost his way there for a little bit on the golf course because he had so many things going on off it, and I think he kind of recognized that, and I think he's back to playing more golf like Rory uh, used to and like he wants to uh, as opposed to just being a spokesperson uh, for all the things that are going on in the game. Despite the fact that he is really the face of the PGA, I, I was surprised to learn that Tiger and Rory didn't really have a heads up on on the merger. We, we've seen some time now go by. We've, we've seen some reactions from people, some resignations from people. Do we have any more idea what this is all going to look like and, and how people are feeling about it almost a month later now? Well, I think that most of the guys uh, will tell you that they're frustrated because they don't know. The, the answer is no. Nobody really knows because, you know, most high-level mergers, you know, high-level transactions in business, uh, and this is more business than it is golf, um, you know, people like us aren't going to know about it. Um, nobody's going to know about it because very few people can know about those kinds of things so that they can put the deal together. And I think that framework is coming together. Uh, I think there's back and forth. Um, there was a little bit of news the other day that to appease the DOJ, the Department of Justice, uh, both sides have agreed that you you can go back and forth. You cannot be exclusive uh, from one tour to the next because that would have been an antitrust situation uh, with the Department of Justice. But I think Rory, Tiger, all down the line, 
there's a frustration level not knowing what the next step is and maybe even more so not knowing not knowing you know what the next step is but you know not being able to know not being allowed to be privy to privy to that type of information the guys aren't used to that people need to remember that golf is different in America than the four team sports if this is Roger Goodell Manfred Adam Silver you know Gary Bettman there's a players union and there's the other side of the tables the owners the commissioners work for the owners and they go against the players and the union in this case the players own the tour so Jay Monahan works for the players. He doesn't work for an owner. There's no owners in golf, not on the PGA Tour. So the players are frustrated by the fact that they just don't know what's going on. And the reason they don't know what's going on is because they can't all know what's going on because you can't have everybody knowing everything when you're doing a deal of this magnitude. Yeah, but but what they could do is there was an advisory board, and it doesn't even yeah. seem like that board was particularly in the known about what was going on. Oh, believe me, I know. I mean, there, there's a high level of frustration, man. You, you should hear some of the stuff we hear uh, talking to the guys off camera. Forget being on camera, but on off camera is the, the best conversations you'll ever have anyway. You guys know that in sports. And it's it's very, very frustrating that the players have a seat at the table and didn't know. And that that's a problem uh, with Jay Monahan and the, and the commissioner and the commissioner's office right now. On the PGA Tour, there's a problem because the players have lost a little bit of trust in their commissioner. Again, if this is the NFL per se, okay, and the NFL union is arguing in a collective bargaining situation with the owners, they're going against each other. That's that's the way it works in team sports. In this particular sport in America on the PGA Tour, the players sit at the table when the decisions are made. Not against the tour, but with the tour. And in this particular case, with this entire live situation, having not known anything, you already saw Randall Stevenson, former chairman of, and CEO of AT&T, quit the board, the policy board. Well, I think players are contemplating not wanting to be a part of the policy board and also you know, being involved in those types of decisions because they weren't involved in the biggest one of all the decisions and that's this thing. So it's a very frustrating time, a uh, very tenuous time for Jay Monahan and, and as commissioner. And it's a very tenuous time for the players who want to be a part of the process and be on that policy board. Uh, but also they want some transparency and, and they're not receiving that right now. Yeah. From my, from my perspective, the, the fracture between the, the leadership as far as the non-golfers and the golfers is troubling enough oh. to me, the bigger concern is, is the fracture between players themselves. Greg Norman and his group have, have basically caused this fracture within this fraternity. And now the uncertainty of knowing what's happening next, whether people could go play on one tour or the other tour, all of those things, I think at least from the outside looking in, seems to be creating an unnecessary fracture amongst the players themselves. What do you see as you're there every day? Yeah, I agree with you. But then on the other side, here's a, here's, it's, it's a, it's a tough one. And here's why. So you're familiar with the name Jimmy Dunn. So Jimmy mm -hmm. Dunn's a very successful businessman and he's been on the policy board. He basically is the person who brokered the deal 
uh, with Lev, with a couple of other people, but he basically was the, the face and the voice of it. He's a business guy. There's a little bit of thought that says, hey, guys, you go play. We'll handle the tour business. You guys play. We'll take care of the tournaments and we'll take care of the league, quote unquote. We'll take care of those types of things. But that's not how this is structured. It's different than the other sports. The way this is structured is that the players don't just play. They own their own tour and they have a seat at the table. There are nine places at the table at the on the board and five of them are players and for them to be in the majority on the board but not know anything about what just took place business-wise is kind of contrary to the concept of having players on that board so it's a very tricky situation i agree and i think you guys would too and i think most people who have a brain would agree that is this a little bit above the heads of professional golfers? They're golfers. They're, they're not business people. They're not people who do mergers and acquisitions. They're not people who deal with billion-dollar deals, billion-dollar business decisions on a daily basis like some of the people who are on the board. Everybody agrees with that. But if you're going to have the structure that's in place that has players on the board and they don't know a thing about what the board is doing – well, then you're going to have a problem, and that's and that's where we stand right now. Separate from the business side of it, the, the golf side of it, golf's a tradition-based sport. These are two yep. very different-looking leagues. What's golf going to look like going forward? I can't see the PGA looking like Happy Gilmore on a Sunday after three rounds of golf with people screaming and guzzling beer. Yeah, I don't think... Well, well, except uh, in Arizona. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but that's yeah, planned. But that's, that's yeah. That, that's that's encouraged there. <laughs> that's right. That's something. That, that's something everybody loves there. That's 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 about as fun a week as you'll ever have in golf. Um, look, I, I think the way it'll all shake out, and I have no idea. If I had an idea, I would tell you. I really don't. Um, there's no way in the world the PGA Tour is going to look like Live. I don't know if you guys have watched Live, um, but. There's no way in the world that it's going to look like that. I think that it is tradition-based. And, you know, look, just like every other sport, you know, the, the game is much quicker. Uh, the, 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 the athletes are amazing now. You're not moving the base paths. You're not moving the rubber back. It's still 60 feet, 6 inches. You're not going to raise the rim to 11 feet instead of 10 and widen the court and lengthen the court. It's still going to be 94 feet long, um, even though the guys are bigger, stronger, faster, and better athletes than they were 50 years ago. And I don't think golf's going to change. Golf's going to be 18 holes. It's going to be 72 holes. Uh, there's going to be a cut. There's going to be some events that don't have cuts, but there's always been events that don't have cuts uh, on the PGA Tour. I don't think people are going to be walking around in shorts. I don't think people are going to be listening to rock and roll and, and, and rap music uh, during rounds. Um, I don't think there's going to be a, a team golf concept uh, on the PGA Tour. I just don't see how you can do that business-wise. Um, but I do think they're going to implement a certain number of things. And I also think that perhaps, perhaps, I don't know this, that there will be like a, a series of events that are live-like, say, in the fall. You know, after the FedEx Cup is has won in Atlanta, the tour championship. But do I think the game is going to look completely different once these two um, tours come together? Eh, I don't think it's going to look that much different. Um, I, I just think there's going to be a couple of changes, but it will not be completely overhauled 
Uh, there's no way that the tradition of the sport and the tradition of the PGA Tour, and by the way, the PGA Tour brand, I don't think they're going to allow it to just be goofy. I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, no, I, don't, I can't see that. You're somebody who's seen so much since you started at the Golf Channel in 2001. I, I wanted to ask, you get to be there a lot for those interviews after the tournament ends. We always see the excitement, and those interviews are amazing. How challenging, challenging is it for you as an interviewer when you put the microphone of somebody in, in somebody's face who loses a tournament right afterwards? You know, it's it's to me, it's the most challenging part of the job. If you're the interviewer, you know, it's like anywhere else in life. Everybody, you know, is great, you know, when everything's going well. <laughs> That's easy. Not easy, but you know what I mean? It's, it's just a lot easier to deal with things uh, when everything's going smoothly. To me, the challenge of interviewing an athlete when he or she has just lost or he or she has just been disappointed or has done something bad uh, on the golf course or whatever the sport is, that's when you know um, if you can do it or not. And I, I think there's an art to um, asking a question that's difficult in a congenial manner. And I think one of the advantages we have on television is we get to look at the athlete. They can see us when we're asking the question. So we're not just in a big room of writers and they're just belting out questions. We're one-on-one -on -one standing right next to the golfer. And if he or she has just lost... You know, they can see on our face as we're asking the question that, you know, we almost feel, you know, you're, there's a compassionate element to it. Let's put it that way. And to me, dealing with athletes when they've lost or been just disappointed, and we're the first ones to get them on television um, because we're not, you know, we're not partners. You know, we, we pay, you know, to show these events. So we get them first. There's a huge advantage to that. It's it's immediate. So you get the emotions right away, good or bad. But when it's a bad situation or someone is just lost or disappointed, it's a very difficult thing uh, to speak to that person and to show some compassion. But you have to. Um, and you have to ask a tough question, but you don't have to be a jerk when you ask a tough question. You can, an athlete knows, you know, an athlete knows, um, an interviewer, a play-by-play -play guy or whoever in our position is, is earning their stripes when they can handle a negative situation. Again, you'll learn a lot about yourself through in adverse situations. You know, we're all, you know, happy, go lucky when things are going well, when things aren't going well, you know, that, that makes it more difficult. And, and for us in a position to speak to them first on the air, live on television for the world to see, you know, that can be a very difficult thing, but it's also gratifying uh, to know that when you do it and you do it right, and hopefully you do it right, uh, that the athlete appreciates it. Look, Steve, you do do it right. But I got to ask you a personal question. 1990, you start out as an intern at CNN Sports. Did you ever see the day would come? And how, how did you how did how did you get from there to the Olympics and now standing on a course at, for the Open? He interviewed Michael Jordan at the Ryder Cup a few years ago. I don't know if you saw that when he was at CNN. Yeah. Um, you know what? It's funny. I, when I was growing up in DC, I'm, I'm a DC guy, big Skins fan, Commanders fan. Um, when I realized that I wasn't going to be the next great art monk, you know, for the Skins. Uh, which I found out early in life. Uh, I just wanted to get involved in sports. And I had a professor where I went to school at Colorado State named Fred Shook, who said, yeah, you, you got to try this. I said, okay. So I tried it. Uh, as far as sports writing, he calls me in. I wasn't thinking about TV or radio or anything like that. I just wanted to be the next Tony Kornheiser or Michael Wilbon writing for the Washington Post. And he calls me in about four or five months, you know, into my sophomore year. 
and says, you're a lousy writer. <laughs> I said, oh, man. I said, you're right. I knew he was right. I knew I couldn't do it. Um, and he goes, but I do think, this is his words, not mine. He goes, I like the way you sound and the way you kind of are, your demeanor. I think you'd be really good doing play-by-play or talking to athletes or whatever it is, sports guessing on television. I, I started laughing. I said, why television? He goes, because I just think, I think that's the route you ought to take. He goes, that's all you care about is sports. Whether it's writing or talking about it, you know, just do that. And I said, okay. So I gave it a shot. Um, I was doing something in Fort Collins, Colorado at a TV station there. And I remember thinking, wow, can you get you getting paid to go to games and do play-by-play or talk to the athletes, whatever it is. So then I applied for this job at, at CNN Sports, uh, which back then used to rival SportsCenter. Uh, they, they don't even have a sports department anymore. But back then it was it was back and forth between the two. Um, basically, CNN Sports ended when the NFL went to ESPN um, in 1989. That was pretty much the end of CNN Sports. And But I was there in 1990, and I was around it every day, all day and night uh, in the summer of, of 1990. And I thought, wow, I can't imagine having a real job as opposed to just doing this. This would not be work to me. And here we are 33 years later from Scottsbluff, Nebraska, my first job to Oak Hill, West Virginia, to Martinburg, West Virginia, to Utica, New York, to Richmond, Virginia, to Orlando, to the Golf Channel, to NBC. Uh, It's been a magical ride. I've been very, very, very lucky. Uh, Very, very lucky to find something I love. Uh, I've been very, very lucky uh, to get some of these jobs that I've gotten over the years. And, uh, you know, let's hope it continues for a few more. I'm only 54. We got to, we got to, you know, pump out a few more years here. Yeah, we got to keep it going. You've been in some amazing atmospheres, you know, covering the Olympics. You've talked about the energy being unmatched. Jeff and I are big fans of the Ryder Cup. Talk about just the atmosphere and emotion when you're playing for your country or when you're playing for a team as opposed to the individual sport that you cover more regularly. Yeah, it's 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 a totally different thing. Um you know, Ryder Cup, Presidents Cup, and golf, uh, Olympics for the other sports. When you when you put on the uniform or the jersey or whatever it is, and it's the red, white, and blue, as opposed to whatever your team is, or in this sport, golf, whatever your sponsor is. Having having done all sports, I mean, a play by play and talking athletes over the 30, 40 years to with thirty three years with in all sports, in this sport in particular, the Ryder Cup is so huge. It's it could be considered an exhibition because it really doesn't matter on your resume. In other words, we all know Tiger Woods has won 82 times and 15 majors. We know that Jack is 73 and 18. I have no idea what their Ryder Cup record is, but when they play, you know, nobody knows what their Ryder Cup record is, but the, that particular week, those three days, it is so like thrilling. It's like, it's it's so incredibly loud. It's sports loud, not golf loud. And that's because the country's behind you. Or in Europe's case, the continent is behind you. Or in the President's Cup case, it's the United States versus everyone else in the world other than Europe, the international side. And it's the fans rally um, and they get them all jacked up and the energy is incredible. And if you take that to an Olympic level, the when you know I do speed skating in the winter games. Uh, I've done a bunch of different things, curling and speed skating, all these other different sports in the winter and summer. But no matter what the venue is, no matter what the sport is, 
when when those flags are going crazy and the people are dressed up and they're rooting for their country and it's just an energy that you can't imagine. And I remember talking to professionals about it, professional athletes, you know, what, what's it going to be like, you know, to be at the Olympics. And they would all, all the guys who I've, who I've met over the years kept telling me there's nothing like it, nothing like it. And it sure is. It's an amazing experience. I was talking last week at the American century championship uh, and Tahoe before coming here to the open to John Elway. And Elway has been to one Ryder Cup in his life. It was at Brookline, the, the Ben Crenshaw. You know, I've got a feeling 1999 Brookline mm-hmm. when the United States was down 10-6. He's going to the Ryder Cup this year with Michael Jordan in Rome. He has never been to a Ryder Cup internationally. And he was asking me, what's it going to be like? The only one he's ever been to was in Boston, outside Boston at Brookline in 1999. And I told him it is literally going to be like Mile High Stadium for the entire 60 minutes in an AFC championship game and the place is going to be going nuts the entire time for three straight days. And he was, this is a guy who's won two Super Bowls, one of the great players in the history of the sport, hall of fame, the whole thing's done everything. And he is so jacked to go because he knows what that feeling is like. We only know it from the outside. You know, we're there, we're, we're, we're inside the ropes or we're in the booth calling it, whatever it is, but we're not competing. We don't know what that's like to receive that type of adulation and also get booed you know, and, and get jeered and those kinds of things. Um, and it's just going to be awesome. It's going to be so cool uh, in Rome. And the Ryder Cup is like the Olympics. There's just an energy to it that's unlike anything in golf. All right. Before we let you go, we do have to ask for a prediction. And when you give the prediction, we also have to say when you're celebrating, since you your family owns a winery, Calvert Woodley Wines and Spirits, what wine would be paired best with an open championship <laughs> as well as a cheese? Well, I, I can, I'll give you a humble brag. I have had a few sips of liquid from the Clara Jug over the years oh. uh, from, some of the, from some of the guys who were – uh, let's put it this way, uh, fun enough and also gracious enough to allow other people into their lives. Um, I am a sportscaster. I couldn't tell you one thing about wine. My brother, Michael owns the store now My father owned it for years. And if I was trying, I don't need to anymore because I've been married forever. But if I needed to impress somebody with a bottle of wine, I would quickly call or text Michael. Uh, so I have no idea. I would put, I mean, if I'm in a celebratory mood, uh, I would not put wine in the Claret jug first. I would put champagne in it and just drink out of it, like the Stanley Cup or, you know, the Claret jug, that kind of thing. It's the most coveted trophy in all of golf, maybe in all of sports outside of the Stanley Cup. So I would probably throw some champagne in there to celebrate first. Um, and I think the person who's going to be sipping champagne, who man, you guys put me on the spot. Um, you know what? I'm a, I'm a sports romantic I think Rory breaks the streak. I think that he has given so much to the game in the last 18 months, and it's made his golf perhaps suffer a little bit. And I think that he comes back this week to Liverpool, where he won his only Open in 2014. He hasn't won one in nine years, a major championship at all. I like that he won last week. Normally, I wouldn't. I don't like it when someone wins the week before a major but last week was different, and I think Rory makes it different. And I think if it's not – here's the thing. If it's not windy, I think Rory's going to win. Rory's not a great wind player. He is a great player when the course is soft, and the course is going to be soft because it's been raining you know, forever and it's supposed to rain all week. So 
I'm going to go with McElroy to break the streak, get to five to match Brooks Kepka, who won five majors uh, with that win at the PGA a few weeks ago at Oak Hill. Uh, so let's go with McElroy and let's go with Champagne first out of the Claire Jug before he puts any wine in there. Oh, look, it was very windy. I watched his hat get blown off. You, you must have been almost blown away out there with, with everything going on there. Steve, yeah. we can't thank you enough for the time. This has been a blast. Uh, enjoy your week there. We hope we get some time with you again. Anytime. My pleasure, fellas. Boy, Jeff, nobody ever offered me a drink out of a claret jug. Barely bring me a bottle of water sometimes. I feel like Steve. How about, a, how about out of the Stanley Cup? Uh, d- that would be cool, too. I mean, look, fun to have him join us from over there. Uh, I told you my little one wasn't sleeping great, so I was up in the middle of the night and I was watching some uh, open golf and uh, women's World Cup soccer because I couldn't sleep. So <laughs> I- I'm, I'm just going to refrain from comment. That's all I'm going to say. You don't really ever need to comment. I mean, no. people know and judge me. Find it show to watch every once in a while it was three o'clock in the morning there's, there's, there's you can binge watch anything these days i wanted to anything sleep. I just we talk sleep. and watch enough sports you do not need to watch sports three o'clock in the morning says the guy you just don't. says the guy who co-hosts a sports radio show that's going to be the last <laughs> word for this week thanks so much for joining us this week make sure to join us next friday night to help you start your weekend in style have a great one and we'll talk to you next week bye-bye